Good morning, y'all. Good morning. We'll continue this morning in our series, Context is Key. This, um, the eighth in the series, um, what does that verse mean by what it says? And uh, we'll continue um, as, after we open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise your holy name. We thank you for your glorious grace. We thank you for your sovereign purposes revealed to us throughout time, given to us by way of your word. Help us to understand it as it is to be understood. For Christ's sake, amen. Um, We began this series um, with a reading from Acts chapter 8, highlighting one of the greatest questions raised in Holy Scripture when Philip was led to a desert way and came upon an Ethiopian eunuch returning from Jerusalem to his homeland when Philip ran alongside his chariot and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah and asked, do you understand what you are reading? To which he replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with that scripture, from the prophet Isaiah, um, told him the good news about Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 8 and verse 35. About 450 years before that epic New Testament moment, um, when the book of the law was found after the exile of Israel, um, the people were starving for the word of God to be preached. And under the leadership of Ezra, who stood on a wooden platform, raised above all the people, read from the scriptures from morning until midday. And we're told that the Levites were tasked with going out and explaining God's commands. In other words, the Levites translated and taught the word of God in context, giving background and meaning so that the people could understand the word of God correctly. And we read in Nehemiah 8 verse 8 that they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Um, We see in our day, in much of the evangelical world, um, that this responsibility has been abandoned for the most part. And there is this frightening, reverberating echo of the prophet Amos that says, Behold, the days are coming 
declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. And what do we experience in our day but many um, doctrinally shallow Christians, unfortunately, because shallow teaching um, inevitably breeds shallow Christians. You know, it's been well said that um, what you win them with is what you win them to. Now, there, there are several ways that Bible verses or entire passages of Scripture, for that matter, are misunderstood. And of course, as we've seen over the weeks, number one, first and foremost, is the common mistake um, people make in ignoring context, where the text becomes a pretext and you make it mean anything you want, really. Secondly, is reading modern biases um, into a text. For example, um, the roles of men and women um, that have been shredded by feminism in our day. And they take Galatians 3.28, for instance, that there is no male and female, we are all one in Christ, in order to defend egalitarianism. You might think that's stretching it too far, but that very thing happened in a local church last Sunday. When the preacher was preaching on roles for men and women, that women are not to teach men in the corporate setting, a man stood up and said, that was for back then and not today, in the middle of the sermon. And he cited Galatians 3.28. Isn't that right? Another problem is um, ignoring you know, figurative language, ignoring genre, um, in, in allowing tradition to cloud the facts of Scripture. You know, remember, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you make void the word of God, right? Because of your what? Traditions handed down. Another reason is straight out dismissing discovered truths within the Scriptures that go against what we already believe or think. We'll cover one of those today. You know, I don't care. I believe what I believe. And um, what a verse means has taken a back seat to, you know, what this verse means to me. And add to that, you know, the quasi-authoritative. Um, don't question me. You know, I know what God told me. Look, God speaks to us, indeed, amen? God speaks to us. We hear his voice when we read scripture and interpret it correctly. Anything he presses upon your heart will never be contrary to the meaning of scripture. So if you are driving in your car and God speaks to you, that is, he impresses something upon your heart, it's always going to be according to scripture, not contrary to it. Okay? That's a reintroduction. And this morning, our old, an Old Testament verse is, it comes from Proverbs, um, chapter 22, and verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. 
even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Um, That verse is taken by many um, as a universal promise um, rather than what it is, um, general wisdom. Proverbial principle, um, and since many people believe that this verse promises that their children um, will indeed be Christians if they just train them um, in the ways of the Lord, um, they are heartbroken. Um, Some um, uh, feel as though they've been lied to um, when their child leaves the faith, at least their professed faith, or they never come to faith. Many godly parents, no doubt godly parents, um, have have taken this verse as a universal guarantee. You know, they'll they'll say, where did we go wrong? Why did God allow this to happen? Why wasn't God faithful to his word? You know? But it's important to understand that that Proverbs um, are intended to be interpreted as general wisdom. Right? Things that, um, in general, are, are, are true. For instance, um, in the Proverbs, we also read verses that state that people who work hard um, will achieve and will be successful. Is that always the case? No. Is it generally true? Sure. It's not a universal promise. There's a story, this is written by a gal named Kathy Howard. Um, She was leading a women's Bible study, and she reports that a young mother of three small boys made a bold declaration in their ladies' study, and she said, if you raise your kids correctly and follow God, they will never rebel. So she goes on to say this. She she writes, while you could see the anguish on the faces of the others, some of the more seasoned women actually had a look of empathy on their faces. (laughs) Thinking, young mother of three small boys, she is clueless. (laughs) Now now her statement um, obviously didn't come from knowledge or experience, but a misunderstanding of Proverbs 22 verse 6. That it's a guarantee. Okay, most proverbs, quite simply, are, are general insights and, and truisms based on observation and experience. So they're principles; they're not promises. These are not universal promises. You know, intended to be you know a kind of universal guarantee that will come to pass one hundred percent of the time. Amen. Known parents that have been crushed by this. Um, Richard Pratt writes, and I quote, that biblical proverbs are um, adages that direct us toward general principles that must be applied carefully in a fallen world where life is always somewhat out of kilter. End of quote. Now Solomon, um, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, expected that, that, that such an environment... Raising your children in the ways of the Lord will normally produce some lasting effect. General principle that 
proves itself out in time. It has an enduring impact. Now, think about this. Those who fail to train their children in the ways of the Lord, um, that does not guarantee their ultimate failure. Okay, on the other end, does it? I mean, you think of the many, many people that God calls to saving faith who were brought up in, in a thoroughly pagan environment, but by the grace of God, who are this day bursting with godly wisdom, incredible wisdom, reminding us once again that, that Proverbs are not um, unconditional promises. Many people have trained their children in, in godliness. They've catechized them from the day they came out of the womb. They've been praying for them, and then they turn out to walk um, in the ways of the world. Heartbreaking. Now, the ESV Study Bible makes this point. Quote, this proverb, founded on the covenant with Abraham, encourages parents to train, that is, to dedicate or initiate their children in the way. Okay, that, that is the moral uh, in right way, by way of moral orientation. ESV continues, by pointing to the kinds of conduct that please or displease the Lord and to the normal outcome of each kind of conduct that is on a matter of consequence, end quote. Matthew Henry, I got two quotes and we're going to wrap this up because I think this is very simple. It's not a universal promise. Matthew Henry, he writes, quote, Ordinarily, the vessel retains the savor. See, does that sound like Matthew Henry or what? Sorry. Ordinarily, the vessel retains the savor with which it was first seasoned. Many indeed have departed from the good way in which they were trained up. Solomon, Solomon himself did so. But early training may be a means of their recovering themselves, as it is supposed Solomon did. At least the parents will have the comfort of having done their duty and used the means. End of quote. Finally, I'm Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman. He writes, quote, Proverbs 22.6 sounds like a promise, but a proverb does not give a promise. The book of Proverbs advises its hearers in ways that are most likely to lead them to desired consequences if all things are equal. The point is that this proverb encourages parents to train their children, but does not guarantee that if they do so, their children will never stray. Otherwise, the verse becomes a sledgehammer of guilt, a purpose that was not intended to carry. On the other side, the proverb should not become a reason for pride if one's children turn out well either. The proverb is simply an encouragement to do the right thing when it comes to raising one's children. End of quote. Amen. So that, this means that Proverbs are not, they're not universal promises. And, I, and I've met people, even in this church, who are heartbroken because they took it as such. All right? All right. New Testament, Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Verse 40. Then... 
two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and one left. Um, if you grew up around um, mainline, I'll call it mainline American dispensational evangelicalism, um, this was probably a passage um, that was appealed to uh, by someone to, to convince you um, of a secret takeaway rapture. Anybody? Yeah. That's what I thought. You come to this verse and, and, and they, you know, that's the rapture right there, they say. Cited by many um, as their proof text, when you inquire of them, where is there a secret rapture in the Bible? Show me. I've done this with my friends. Show me. And they'll run to Matthew 24, 40. Okay, Jesus is not describing some secret rapture where he takes believers away for seven years and then comes back and sets up a thousand-year reign in Jerusalem where he sets up a political kingdom of all things and reinstitutes temple sacrifices which dispensationalists and Christian Zionists teach. They do. That's a blasphemous idea, by the way. I know I've said that. I've pounded that for years. Look, when that physical temple was dethroned, it's because Jesus, the God-man, was enthroned to the right hand of the Father. God will never approve of nor sanction the rebuilding of some physical structure. I mean, that, that, that would stand as an affront to the incarnation. An insult to the life, death, and resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of Jesus Christ the true temple of the living God. Look, whether or not Jewish people today rebuild a temple in Jerusalem, it is irrelevant and unrelated to anything in biblical prophecy. Boy, that sounds pretty authoritative. That's right. So, look, whether you believe in that dispensational doctrine or not. It's not being taught here. Straight up not being taught here, this, this secret rapture. This passage is speaking about the judgment of the wicked, unbelievers, and the judgment of the righteous, believers. That's what he's talking about. Now, in Matthew 24... When you read through it, chapter 1, or I'm sorry, chapter 24, verses 1 through 31, when you get to the parable of the fig tree, it makes it possible to know the nearness of Jerusalem's fall. That's what the, the entire first half of this sermon is about. Jesus came out of the temple and was going away when his disciples came up. When his disciples came to a point to the temple, in pointing to the temples in the buildings that surrounded it, 
said to them, Do you see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. So as he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things happen? What things? The tearing down of the temple and not one stone being left upon another. Those things. What will be the sign of, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. And he goes on and he gives all of these signs of impending judgment upon the temple. So whereas the parable of the fig tree, again, makes it possible to know the nearness of Jerusalem's fall, verses 1 through 31, nothing will help you fix the date of proximity with regard to Christ's final return. So in the first half of the sermon, Jesus gives specifics concerning events preceding and leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. But here, what I just read, one taken, one left, he's describing final judgment. Now if you look in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, okay, what days? The days he's referring to with regard to the destruction of Jerusalem. The questions they asked about early on in chapter 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Okay, and again, that's eschatological language. That's um, language used um, in the Bible, on the Old Testament, with regard to the falling of nations under the hand of God's judgment. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see, in other words, when they see the effects of the Son of Man coming in the clouds, coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Citing what? Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, where the Son of Man ascends into the clouds to receive his kingdom from the ancient of days who is God the Father. And from that point on, when Jesus ascends, the Son of God, the Son of Man, ascends and receives his kingdom, again, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now, as we taught this years ago, that is, after the fall, I think this is how you interpret this, after the fall of Jerusalem, throughout the course of this present age, what we know is the last days, God will be gathering his elect from the four corners of the earth, otherwise known as the end time harvest as he ascends. Now, learn the parable from the fig tree. Learn it. When its branch has, been already, when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, its leaves, you know that summer's near. So you too, when you see all these things, what things? All the things I've just described to you with regard to your question about the temple and its buildings. All those things recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation, okay, living, 
as I speak these words, will not pass away until all these things take place. Verse 36, telescoping, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day, what day? When heaven and earth passes away. And that hour, no one knows. I just told you what's going to precede the destruction of the temple. So learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branches are tender and it puts forth its leaves, you know, you know summer's near. This generation will not pass until all these things with regard to the destruction of Jerusalem takes place. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. But of that day and of that hour, that is, when heaven and earth pass away, no one knows that day. No one knows that moment. So he shifts. Not even the angels of heaven nor the Son but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the, son, the coming of the Son of Man. Then there will be two in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taking, taken one will be left. So he compares the days of his coming to the days of Noah, highlighting, notice, that this sudden and unexpected nature with regard to his second coming, when heaven and earth passes away. No one knows that hour. I've given you all the signs about the destruction of that temple, the one you're pointing to and the one that you're asking about. Many evil things will take place. Many will be coming in my name in that day. There'll be earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars, which there were. But the end is not yet for the destruction of that temple. And he talks about the abomination of desolation prophesied by Daniel. Highlighted in Daniel's time and even a, a, a worst manifestation of that under Antiochus Epiphanes took place with Rome and they sacked the place. They starved them out. If you read Josephus, gross things took place during that Jewish war. Great atrocities. And I'm giving you all these signs with regard to that. But this day, no man knows. You'll be carrying on, marrying, partying, Enjoying life, wrapped up in your own affairs, blind to the greater realities of life. Business as usual, in other words. And interestingly, notice that there's absolutely nothing wrong with anything that Jesus gives in this list. Did you notice? No, Jesus doesn't say, when I come again, there's going to be thieving, murdering, you know, pillaging, and lusting. That all may be true, but that's not what Jesus says. Why? Because Jesus wants to highlight, as William Hendrickson puts it, 
that these people are going to be preoccupied with the mundane activities that they have forgotten the greater spiritual realities of life. People will be wrapped up in their own affairs. And then J.C. Ryle says this, quote, There shall be no time for parting words or a change of mind. When the Lord appears, no second chance. It will be like one person working in the field and judgment has come. Boom. It will be like two women working together and judgment has come. Boom. The boom is mine, by the way. That's not very Ryle-esque to say boom. (laughs) Blessing on one, judgment on the other. And notice they're, they're swept away. As in the days of Noah, the flood came and swept unbelievers where? Away. One taken, swept into judgment, the other one left. So Matthew usually uses the verb to be taken to refer to be taking into judgment, taken into, taken away into judgment, which seems to be telling us that the one who's left behind will be spared from God's judgment. Amen? So you want to be left behind. I mean, after all, think about it. Christ's second coming consummates the kingdom he already established at his first coming. Consummation is a new heaven and a new earth. So you want to be left there. These are swept away. They're taken away into judgment. Look at Matthew 13. Verse 24, Jesus presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares. First, gather up the tares. First, gather up the tares in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. He presented another parable. Well, I'll stop there. So wheat, okay, that's God's elect, good seed, um, saved people living on the earth when he returns. Now, are, are, are they raptured out of the world before the last day? Are they raptured when we read this? No, verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest, gather the weeds first, burn them, and then gather the wheat into my barn. So in other words, believers will be living alongside the wicked until the day of the great harvest. 
1 Thessalonians 4. This is all with regard to the second coming. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Okay, now, now Paul writes this because the Thessalonians are concerned about those believers who have already died. Okay? Okay, notice verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. In other words, those who have died. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive are and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay, notice, first event. The Lord will descend. Okay, notice, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet... Okay, now that's referred to in Revelation as the last trumpet. How many last trumpets are there? Thank you. Second event, the dead in Christ shall rise first. That is referring to every believer who has ever lived from throughout time. Their bodies will be raised up. Okay, meaning that their bodies will be physically raised, joined together with their spirit which exists in the intermediate state, that is, in the presence of the Lord. At the same time, those who are living upon the earth, when the trumpet sounds, that's the Lord's return, they will experience a new body, verse 17. Caught up together with them, those whose bodies it's just, just one huge event. Boom, boom, boom. Three times in the passage, notice, Paul uses language to convey the idea that Christ's return to earth will be accompanied by a loud, clear, divine announcement. Nothing secret about it at all. Nothing secret. Verse 16, the Lord himself will descend with heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. So the, the, the whole thrust there of this threefold announcement is that God himself will proclaim the return of Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord, so loudly that the whole world will hear it. Chapter 5. Now, as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a, upon a woman with child. They will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. What day? The day of judgment that we read about in Matthew 24. 
where both tares and wheat dwell together on earth until that day, Matthew 13. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for what? Wrath. That's his judgment. That's not tribulation on this earth. That's his wrath. His justice poured out. But for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, if dispensationalists are correct about a secret rapture, then Jesus does not have two advents. He has three. Right? His first coming... Advent, first coming. If the secret rapture is true, then there's the second secret coming and then a third coming. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 50, 5, 0. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. That's what we just read in 1 Thessalonians. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Okay, not all sleep means not all die, but they're transformed instantaneously at the return of Christ. This occurs at the last trumpet sound. Last means last, not second to last. I think this, you know, secret rapture teaching is just, it's classic eisegesis. It's been around for 200 years, that teaching, by the way. Came out of Europe, found its way to America. And from America, John Darby came, um, the Schofield Reference Bible and Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, which is really um, the flagship for dispensational secret rapture theology. And then, and then it spread throughout the land like a virus. And you get these movies, late great planet Earth, Hal Lindsey in the 70s. I grew up Presbyterian, never heard of a secret rapture teaching until this movie came out. We, I remember where, uh, I went with some people to my high, the high school I would later attend um, in the assembly hall there. And um, they showed that movie. What was that movie in the 70s? There was late great planet Earth and there was that... Thief in the night, scaring people half to death. <laughs> and then, of course, the Left Behind series. You remember that? Do you know a lot of American dispensational folks um, form their eschatology from those fictional books? 
Perhaps you did. My wife read those for entertainment in the 90s, and I made her keep, them, I made her keep those books behind the couch so nobody would think that that's our eschatology. But she said they were entertaining nonetheless, but she could only take about three of them, and then that was it. How many came out? Five, six, seven books? It's just, it's classic eisegesis. This reinstitution of a sacrificial system, utterly blasphemous. Jesus is the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the earth. The temple, the sacrificial system, all pointed forward to him. He is its fulfillment. On the last night at the Lord's table, at the Lord's supper with his disciples, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. Blood of the new covenant. You know what he doesn't talk about at the dinner? The Passover dinner? A lamb. You read anything about a lamb that night? Why? Because he's sitting at the head of the table. Jesus Christ, the lamb, crucified. It all points to him. He is its fulfillment. So the, the Bible teaches clearly, I believe, that there will be Christians living on earth when Christ returns in glory and in power. When he appears, that's when he comes again. Two advents, not three. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us to understand it correctly. For your glory and the good of your saints. Amen.